0: We expect to get details today for the long-awaited deal to extend the Indians slash Guardians lease and find out how much the taxpayers will be on the hook for renovating Progressive Field. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. Layla Tassi is taking a couple of days off before summer ends to enjoy some time with her children She's going to miss the big news. I'm sure she'll she'll be upset about that. So so look, we've I, we've been talking all summer about how this deal could completely pivot the mayor's race. Right. Because we know from the Q deal four years ago during a mayor's race, what it did. There's there, there certain candidates that came flying out of the woodwork to say you shouldn't spend money on a public sports stadium. You're paying billionaires, all that, all that rhetoric. And you should be taking care of social causes. And Cleveland has definite social needs. We got a lead paint problem that is crippling generation after generation of children. We have infant mortality, overarching poverty. So this could greatly change the mayor's race. And I don't know that we have any indication that the people behind this deal learned from four years ago and brought the community in to try and put something together. I certainly have not heard that. We have to wait to see. What do you think we'll see today?
1: Oh, all I want to know is are my ticket prices going up? That's all I want to know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and that obviously played into the Q deal too. Like that was yeah. a big concern. And yeah, I, I mean that was a, a years long process and and had some people really riled. So if they learn from that, they'll they'll have a coalition.
0: Well, here's the thing. There, there, there are always are people that get email from them all the time that say you should never spend public money on sports stadiums because you're enriching billionaires. And it's a ridiculous argument. The, the The public owns these stadiums. And based on the current state of affairs, that's just the way it's done. And if if Cleveland doesn't do it, Nashville will. And, you know, losing the Indians, uh, aside from the economic blow would be a blow to the psyche of this region i mean we're we're a city with three major sports teams and it matters but we did learn four years ago that you really need to have a community conversation so that people understand those economics i guess today we'll launch that conversation but the fact that they're doing it in a mayor's race here don't think these guys ever learn yeah means
1: it's
0: it's gonna blow up i mean i you know do you think dennis kucinich won't take the bait unless a lot of dennis kucinich voters are are worried about losing the Indians, then maybe he won't. So it's going to be an exciting day to see what it is. I'm sure it's going to be a lot, a lot of money. (laughs) And I'm sure we'll
1: get a lot of reaction
0: to it. Yeah. So it'll be a, a big news day. Okay, let's get to our questions. Will students be wearing masks in classrooms as the new school year begins in coming weeks? Laura Johnston, we've been back and forth on this. This is something that you are acutely interested in. What does it look like?
2: Yeah, I hope they're going to be wearing masks this year. Uh, But it could give you whiplash just trying to follow the latest news back and forth. The County Board of Health on Wednesday issued new COVID-19 safety recommendations for this school year. They say all students and teachers should wear masks regardless of vaccination status. Also, they want to still keep those kids three feet apart, which hurts my heart to think that my kids are going to be eating at their solo desks in a gym again, but I would much rather keep them and all the other kids safe because obviously kids 12 and under cannot be vaccinated. We're hearing maybe December by the time that's possible. So, um, this could be this could be an interesting start to the school year we're we're at least talking nobody's saying they're not going to go full-time or they're just going to go hybrid so the recommendation is simply for masks there was an email that went out in my district about you know you have to wear the masks on the bus but this As much as I think this makes a whole lot of sense with the Delta variant climbing, and we were looking at more than 2,100 cases in Ohio yesterday of COVID, that is 10 times more than it was a month ago. I I don't think there's a way around this mask thing. It's still controversial. There's a a group in Bay Village on Facebook called Anti-Muzzle Parents. And um, I think Leila Tassi has talked about this on the podcast that there are people that want to put their kids in private school because they don't want their kids to wear masks, which I, I, I don't understand.
0: That's like the lunatic fringe. So last year, all the school districts basically said, we're going to go on what the health department recommends. And we were in that silly color chart that Mike Mm -hmm. DeWine had unveiled and the, the health board had basically said, if we go red, you know, we should go hybrid or we should educate people at home, all that stuff. And and many districts followed that, at least initially. Up until now, there hasn't been guidance from the health board. This is the guidance. We think that everybody in schools, adults and children, should wear masks. So do we think that the school districts will still adhere to that? Or do we think that they'll bend to the the muzzle crowd and really endanger their students? And if they do, Does that give them a legal liability? If you don't follow the science, can a parent whose kid gets very sick come back at you and sue you for endangering their children? That's an interesting question.
2: I I don't know the answer to that, obviously. We're going to see how it plays out. But Hannah Drown, one of our reporters, has been working for days trying to track down exactly what schools are going to, to do. And she hasn't been able to nail down an interview because people aren't ready to talk about it because it's been changing so fast. A lot of school districts came out in June. We had stories then said they didn't anticipate kids wearing masks. And now they've got to reconsider that. So she said the plans that she's seen said the younger grades, you know, fifth and younger, maybe sixth and younger are going to have to wear masks and the older ones might not have to. So, so because those so, are the kids that can be vaccinated.
0: So they're going to ignore then the health board advice, and,
2: but that just came out yesterday. Right. So I don't, I think there's going to be some really heated board meetings in August and remember kids start school and as, as few as like, you know, five days. This is happening right as we are trying. You know, ki- kids are getting ready to, to board the bus to go back to school.
0: You know, I get the idea. There, there's a lot of people that think that w- the kids shouldn't have been kept at home. We didn't know back in the beginning mm-hmm. just how little vulnerability they had at the time, although that could change. Right. But but this is just about the mask. I mean, mm-hmm. and we did see as kids went back to school, they largely wore the masks that we had masks everywhere. What, why are parents so exercised and about kids wearing a mask?
2: I don't know. Like the kids themselves don't seem to be fighting it. And when you looked at the number of cases in schools, they stayed really low. It just it was a matter of the community spread, not so much school spread. And so, you know, these kids can be safe and get educated, you know, safely if they wear masks. So I, I don't understand the pushback. The colleges are already jumping on board. We've had over the last three days, Ohio State, Kent State. Akron U all requiring masks for everyone in indoor spaces. Akron U just came out and said, if you don't tell us your vaccination status or you're not vaccinated, we might be testing you weekly. I mean, the, everybody who thought that they were done with this is like scrambling to put okay, a plan in but, place.
0: But I'm get, get, I get back to my question, though. What would be the academic argument? against the mask what, what what how does that impede learning or impede childhood the staying home and not socializing with other kids not being present with teachers you know clearly that did a lot of harm but what is the harm of a kid wearing a mask
2: i think the argument is probably that the kids feel restricted that it's difficult to keep them on all day or that it's hard you know they're not clean they don't wear them right anyway and when you have that masking and that three foot social distance, they're not interacting with their peers the way that they would have before COVID, right? We're not doing group group projects. They're not touching. They're not sharing crayons. They're not doing any of that. And maybe there are some parents that just think the risk is not as high as the reward for getting to interact with other kids. I don't know. <laughs> I Could I say buy- something here? Yeah,
0: go ahead, Jane. Go ahead.
2: <laughs> You know, at least we're not in a state
1: like Florida where the governor there has prohibited. Uh, mask mandates. So, yes. you know, are, I mean, schools at least, are
0: defying that though because they're yeah. worried about their kids.
1: But at least here, the schools do have the authority or authority right now. But do isn't do there that, a bill
2: but. in the state house that's trying to outlaw mask um, mandates? I'm not
1: sure about the mask. You know, they passed the one on the vaccinations, Vaccinate. but. That was for, you know, vaccinations that don't have full approval. And I it's mean, like, I feel
2: like if it's not introduced, like there are some Republicans. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> <Just> they're on <laughs> summer break right now, but, so, I, but this but, will probably get
1: them riled up.
0: But and but let's stay back. on the argument. The argument, again. I mean, I've got a five-year-old grandson that hates wearing shoes, but, you know, he wears <laughs> shoes. So that idea that the kids don't like wearing the masks, I mean, they have to wear shirts. They have to wear pants. They have to wear underwear. I'm just tripping over why you'd be so upset about the mask that you'd create a silly Facebook page where you call it a muzzle, which is silly. I mean, unless they think it stops their kids from biting.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, mean, they might have this argument that it's harder to breathe. I mean, it is harder to breathe. It's uncomfortable. Nobody likes wearing masks, but I mean, they must think, I mean, there's this whole faction of people that doesn't believe that it's real, you know? Or So I, I can't explain it.
0: All right. And in related news, uh, the county executive, Armand Budish, has mandated mask wearing in all the county buildings uh, of visitors and of employees because he wants to stop the the flow of coronavirus. We should just mention that. Lots of businesses are now. You got Walmart and Target. and
2: Yeah. And, and Giant Eagle. I went to Giant Eagle last night and I wore my mask, even though the mandate doesn't start for customers till tomorrow on friday it started for employees yesterday and i wanted to be respectful and you know protect everyone but there are a lot of people still not wearing masks so
0: that's a west side thing laura over in our side of town (laughs) people people are wearing masks we care about our health so in our grocery stores you see mask wearing you're listening to this week in the CLE. Did our analysis of voting patterns in Tuesday's Democratic congressional primary, in which Chantel Brown handily defeated Nina Turner, show that the Jewish vote did make a big difference? Jane Cahoon, we looked at the the turnout in some of the suburbs where there's a fairly big Jewish population and speculated that that had a, a big role. There was a lot of money spent by Jewish groups that worried that Nina Turner would would do damage to the state of Israel. What did our analysis show?
1: Well, it pretty much bore that out. Um, Yeah, it did make a difference. I mean, according to Chantel Brown's own campaign, she got a big boost from both suburban votes, uh, including some wealthy uh, cities in the district, as well as areas with a higher proportion of Jewish voters. We we don't have firm figures on the Jewish population because the U.S. Census doesn't ask a religion question, but according to the Jewish Democratic Council of America, which is a PAC that supported Chantal Brown, about 22,000 Jewish voters live in the district with um, cities like Beechwood, Cleveland Heights, Shaker Heights, and University Heights having large populations. and. We saw the turnout was a lot higher in these areas. It was 16.88% overall, but in Beechwood, it was 31%. And that's where Brown tallied her highest margin of victories. Uh, Other cities that went in her favor were Shaker Heights and University Heights. Um, I believe Cleveland Heights went for Nina Turner. But um, Seth Richardson talked to the CEO of the Jewish Democratic Council of America, who said that Jewish voters, you know, didn't just make their decisions based on the state of Israel. They they base their decisions on a wide variety of domestic policy issues as well, and on most of those issues, they align more with Chantel Brown. Uh, now. Um, Brown also did well in suburbs with large black populations like her hometown of Warrensville Heights, uh, as well as Maple Heights, Bedford Heights, Euclid. Um, Turner, on the other hand, did best in Cleveland. She got 52% of the vote to Brown's 42%. Uh, So the only other major city Turner did win, as I said, was was Cleveland Heights. Brown's campaign manager, Brian Peters, kind of summed up the race in a memo he put out, and it said, our polling late in the race showed we were winning black voters and Jewish voters while Turner's campaign was powered by white voters, a minority in this primary. So that's yeah. kind of how it played out.
0: You know, I've been hearing before and after the election from people in the Jewish community who, who were very worried about Nina Turner. And after... The election i've received a number of emails from people pointing out her her statement after she lost in which she talked about the evil money that came in from out of town to steer the race and they're really alerting on that evil money looking yeah, at the that's... history of how people have described the Jewish community. I mean, this is a this is a group that has been persecuted in so many ways in so many places in history. So they're they're very alert to that kind of language. And they were pointing it out, saying, you know, th- that that tells us something about that we made the right decision. Mm-hmm. They, they really are seeing uh, an anti-Semitism. I also heard from some people that said, look, we don't think she's anti-Semitic, but if she joins the squad, that this is a group that really does not have a high regard for the relationship with Israel.
1: Right. Right. You're right about so, all that.
0: Yeah. So it'll, it, it's an, it was, it's very interesting how that, uh, how that played out. It'll be also interesting to see how Chantel Brown does next year when she's got to do it all over again. Yeah. Uh, a, you
1: know, one interesting factor is that right now, Uh, The city of Cleveland, I believe, makes up about a third of that of the 11th district. But the new redistricting rules require Cleveland to not be split up. So Cleveland's probably going to make up half the district. So that that already changes the dynamic there. Now, I think, as we talked about yesterday, she's in a really strong position. She's going to have backing from establishment Democrats and so forth. But it's just it's it's interesting to note that Cleveland will be a bigger chunk of the district next time around
0: yeah she's going to have to defend the seat probably from a real challenge and then if she wins that the way that district works is the the, the incumbent has an easy path all of the previous ones did uh, but we'll have to we'll have to see without nina turner in the race next year it'd be a very different dynamic unless she runs again although i'd be surprised if she did you're listening to this week in the cle what do all of the people who might have caught former Cleveland City Councilman Ken Johnson fleecing the taxpayers say about why they did not? Laura Johnson, we were asking these questions earlier this week. Where was the state auditor that audits Cleveland's books? Where was the administration of Frank Jackson that, that is, runs the finance department and is supposed to look at things? Where was the city council accounting system? And this guy was turning in Nothing. If you turned in an expense report like he turned in to me, I wouldn't pay it. Certainly not for twelve hundred dollars every single month for 10 years. So we did go out to ask how they missed this. What did they tell us?
2: Yeah, they all said their systems aren't set up to catch this, that they rely on people to be honest and they're they're looking for checks and balances and documentation, you know, like the paperwork to be in order, but not. Fraud, basically. So it is no wonder that that he kept doing it, and this this monthly expense reports without hearing a single request to find out where this money was going. One hundred and twenty seven thousand dollars. So I mean, to be totally frank, I I don't think if it weren't if it weren't for former Cleveland.com dot com columnist Mark Namick, I think he would still be collecting this money.
0: Yeah, Unless- I mean, I get. You know, Dave Yost was the auditor for many of these years. He's the current Attorney General. And, and he's right. His office is correct. And, and an audit doesn't look at every number in the books. It takes sets of records to test various processes. But but nobody answered why, how in 10 years they never did a test of city council expense accounts. I and mean, I get it. You can't look at everything every year, but you would have thought the filter would have caught this. Because they question this kind of stuff when they see it. Right. Kevin Kelly, the council president is running for mayor, Keeps saying that he knew nothing about it and acted on it as soon as he heard about it. But that doesn't get out of the question is why didn't you know about it? This seems so egregious.
2: Yeah. It's the same amount every month. No doc documentation. The maximum amount. It literally blows the mind that no one asked about this. Um, But yeah, I guess about the same time as these columns that Mark wrote, um, a, a new council finance employee named Vicadia Stiggers moved in and she knew uh, Fitzpatrick, the guy who kind of also collected money from this scheme and questioned why he was getting paid twice by the city, once for his job and once by Johnson. So maybe, you know, this alert clerk would have caught it all too, but it definitely takes someone asking questions rather than just saying, okay, your paperwork's in order. Here's your check.
0: Well, and I forgot about this, but one of our former colleagues, I won't name now because he's in another job in the executive world, uh, sent me a note to remind me that back when Jane Campbell was mayor, they did a city audit. Frank Battalamente, the internal auditor, great guy, audited some of this and found Ken Johnson was crediting expense that he shouldn't have been expensing. So, There was a red flag for Ken Johnson back in 2003, 2004, 2005. You would think that that red flag from back then would stay on the file. And you'd keep looking, hey, is he abusing his expense account? I, I think the way he corrected that was just to claim the full amount every month just by saying I spent it. And they gave well, him the money.
2: <laughs> and they talked about this in the story that John Caniglia wrote, that it's a fiefdom, right? Like these council members run their own ward services. They're much more independent than, say, like county council people, and they are responsible for responding to issues in their own wards. And I, I mean, I don't think there's a lot of oversight on what they do individually.
0: Except... The system is designed to be checks and balances. Mm-hmm. The council is the check on the mayor. The mayor's office is the check on the council members. So the finance department, the law department, they have a responsibility to make sure that the checks they're stamping are legitimate. I I, I found their explanations unsatisfying because it, it you know, Kevin Kelly said, look, we put in processes so it can't happen again but they've said that before. There've been previous scandals about expenses in which they say, oh, oh, system's fixed. So I'm, I, I just find that the excuses and the, hey, you know, we didn't count on fraud, w- why do audits? I mean, the audits are just right. to find basic mistakes. Of course you're looking for fraud. That's what all those findings for recovery are. There are criminal cases that come out of audits. So I'm, I'm not quite buying it, but, uh, but it was a decent story to hear from them all. At least we had some accountability. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did Kirtland City Council vote to fire the police chief, and how long did their discussion take to reach that decision? Jen Kuhn, I stuck you with this question because Layla's not here. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: it's it's quite all right. It's it's an interesting story. Uh, so first to your question on the reason, uh, the, the police chief, Lance Nassi, was accused of drinking while using a city-owned vehicle in April as well as sexual, ethnic, and racial harassment and drinking off-duty to the degree that it affected his performance and his ability to work the next day. That was according to a letter in July that the uh, mayor sent to him. I'm presuming
0: Um, this means he's so hungover he couldn't do his job. I
1: guess. I mean, there were a few more details in the local paper, the News-Herald, that said that Nasi made— racist remarks as well as vulgar and sexual remarks while at work. And then um, I guess he told the council he didn't recall making those remarks, but he did say he battled with alcoholism and, and was seeking treatment for that. Um, I guess the officials there said they didn't seek his termination because of his disease, but rather because he didn't adhere to city policies and he wasn't a good example. So, but as to your other question, it it appears the council labored over this decision. They met Monday for a termination hearing starting at 6 p.m., and they talked about it all the way until like 2 a.m. Tuesday morning. And then they continued the discussion Tuesday evening and met for another four and a half hours before finally voting 6 to 1 to terminate him. Uh, He is still eligible for his pension. He was with the department for 25 years. Um, And before all this, they they did like a three-month investigation into the allegations against him, and he had been suspended. You know, at one point, he apparently had agreed to resign, but didn't think that was a wise decision and changed his mind. And they had tried to come to some sort of separation agreement with him, but that didn't work out either. So it's just a sad story and, you know, the end end of his career.
0: I can't believe how long it took to talk. We look, we were all reporters. If I had to cover ten hours of discussion, oh my gosh. Man, I'd rather shave my head with a cheese grater while chewing on tinfoil, you know, it's just that that would be so painful. And I don't yeah. quite understand what the difficulty was unless they just had somebody who was a holdout and they kept kept trying to get there. But wow, 10 hours of discussion. Yeah, I
1: don't know. You know, he was, he was a longtime employee, so maybe they had personal connections and, and, you know, they considered his disease and, um, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm just speculating. I have no idea. Yeah, that's
0: a, that's a strange one. You don't see a lot of police chiefs fired for those kinds of reasons. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How common are the kinds of dangerous staph infections that caused Indians manager Terry Francona to walk away from the team for the rest of the season? Or, Johnston, we staph infections are a fairly common thing, and usually they're treated fairly quickly. But, but rarely do you see what's happening here. How rarely and what's the cause of it?
2: Yeah, this is incredibly common bacteria. According to the CDC, 33% of people carry staph bacteria in their nose, usually without any illness. That's That fact really stuck out to me when I read Evan McDonald's story. But there are millions of staph infections every year in the United States. Most of them are just mild skin infections. You treat them with some antibiotics and they go away. But about 100,000 of them every year can result in serious issues in the bloodstream, lungs, heart, breast, digestive system, and bones. So there are more than 30 different strains of staph bacteria. And um, yeah, so this this can happen. It's not that uncommon, but there are some things you can do to protect your risk. You know, Take care of yourself, um, wash your hands daily, cover any cuts, because that's what can be really bad is if a cut gets infected and it, it gets inside your skin that way.
0: Yeah, it's really frightening. You know, I do woodworking. I cut myself all the time (laughs) and I don't do anything to cover it up. But but I mean, he's been through hell. Yeah, Uh, you really feel for the guy. And it's it's the kind of thing that that most people just kind of take for granted. So it's a decent story explaining how the, the mechanics of that work. You're listening to this week in the CLE. For two days, the nation had no moratorium on evictions. Was there a mad rush to evict people at Cleveland Housing Court? And how much of Ohio is covered by the new moratorium? Jane Cahoon, this became a huge national controversy. The... Democrats in Congress were furious with the president for letting this expire. And so they quickly patched together something that, you know, probably won't pass the court muster, but at least it's in place for now. What happened at housing court?
1: Right. It is still a huge controversy. But, um, yeah, for that brief period when the moratorium lapsed on uh, Saturday, Um, well, it lapsed on Saturday, but then a brief period after that, the Cleveland Housing Court in fact did not see a rush into court by landlords. Uh, So on Monday and Tuesday, when no order was in effect, landlords filed 27 new eviction cases in Cleveland Housing Court. Uh, And then um, for comparison, they, they filed a 101 cases from July twenty sixth to July 30th, when the moratorium was still in effect. So, so no, there was no rush. They also didn't see a large number of motions, uh, you know, asking the court to resume cases after they were put on a pause during the moratorium. So there, there wasn't, there just wasn't a big uh, ripple there. But you asked about the extension of the moratorium itself and how much it affects Ohio. It, it goes through October 3rd, and it, it affects. Seventy of Ohio's eighty-eight counties, and that's where the, the Centers for Disease Control data on coronavirus transmission indicates substantial community risk in those um, in those counties. The the CDC basically in extending this determined that evicting tenants who can't pay their rent could could hurt public health efforts to to try to slow the spread of the coronavirus, especially with the highly contagious Delta variant. But um, so in Ohio, yeah, we have 18 counties that don't don't meet that threshold. But the order covers, you know, the rest, which includes Cuyahoga, Geauga, Portage, Medina, Lorain, and Summit in Northeast Ohio here. But w- what they're hoping is that extending this moratorium is going to provide more time for $47 billion in emergency rental assistance that's supposed to be getting to these people. But they, there have been problems with state and local governments getting these funds out because it's a newly established program. Um, But this is supposed to help people to pay their back rent and their future rent and their utilities. Um, Sherrod Brown talked about this yesterday. He said he's been in touch with Governor Mike DeWine to talk about you know, getting this assistance delivered quickly to people. But as you said,
0: but but what did they do? Like have the unemployment office do it? And this (laughs) doesn't seem like it should be that hard, right? It shouldn't be, but there's, there's billions set aside so that people won't get thrown out. The renters need the money. The landlords need to get paid because let's face it, if the landlords own investment properties and they're not making any money, they could go belly up. You don't want that either. But so so is this just a wholesale failure of the state and and local governments? Armin Budish has put tens of millions into this. Is it just not going to the to the right people? Yeah, (laughs) I don't
1: know what the bottleneck is, but, you know, never underestimate the bureaucracy and all the red (laughs) tape involved, you know. But um, yeah. And as you said, you know, there's still a backlash to this because. As you said, you know, extending this moratorium appears to go against a Supreme Court decision that said Congress is the one with the authority to do this. And and President Joe Biden's pretty much acknowledged that this is legally questionable, but but they want to buy time for, you know, while the courts are litigating it, they they could have more time to get this aid out. So, but you know, Republicans are really calling them out on that and said, you know, there's no legal justification Look,
0: I'm, for doing I'm, it. I've never understood the, the moratorium because you're basically depriving the landlords of property rights. I, I, I just don't understand how they could pull that off. And and the courts largely have said that. And for the CDC to be the one issuing it, the answer was, hey, look, we don't want to have a lot of evictions. Let's make sure that the tenants and landlords are made whole. And we blew it. I mean, and you know, Trump blew it and Biden has now blown it. The 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 quickest way to end this crisis is to get that money into right. the hands of the right. landlords who are not getting paid. So hopefully that'll happen before the courts throw this out because it, it, they will. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We got to get to work. We got big stories to do today coming on Progressive Field. And my bet is, Jane, whenever we have a busy news day in other areas, there's always something that comes out of your state house team. So, <laughs> say it ain't up.
1: so. Say it ain't so.
0: Buckle up, and it's Thursday. There's it's always Thursday. news oh on Thursday. Oh my gosh. Okay. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you to the absent Layla Tasi. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about that progressive field deal and any other news that happens today.